It was still dark when the 26th Cavalry Regiment saddled and mounted their horses on December 22, 1941. The regiment started the 10-mile march north toward the town of Rosario, about six miles inland from the Lingayen Gulf, on the northwestern coast of the Philippines' largest island, Luzon. The 26th Cavalry was one of the U.S. Army's last horse-mounted cavalry units and was made up almost entirely of Filipino servicemen. Among them was Private Dominador Figuracion, a thin, 5'8", Philippines native with black hair and a smooth, oval-shaped face. He looked much younger than his 21 years, which contrasted with his thoughtful, serious expression. Private Figuracion and the 26th Cavalry had been riding steadily north from Manila for several days, dodging Japanese air raids that sent them and their horses scrambling for cover in roadside ditches. Most riders made it, some did not. It had been a bloody ride. As the sun came up, more than 600 horse riders rode in two single file lines, one on each side of the paved road. They spread out along the road to make themselves less of a target for Japanese aircraft that often flew over the island. But the dawning morning brought a pleasant sight for the riders. Looks like a cloudy day today. Private Figuracion shouted to a riding companion nearby. The companion grinned, looking up to examine the sky and responded, Great for riding! Even better because the jet pilots can't see us through the clouds! The overcast conditions kept the temperatures in the mid-70s, which made the humidity, at least for the time being, a little less oppressive. The riders appreciated the reprieve of both heat and heavy enemy air attacks as they continued north through the rolling hills along the Baguio Road. The horse regiment passed through a group of American tanks, part of the 192nd Tank Battalion, parked beneath the cover of some trees. The tank men, including Private Lester Tenney, who we met in Episode 2, sat on their tanks or on the ground eating their canned rations for breakfast. The friendly, fresh-faced American boys waved to Figuracion and the other passing cavalrymen. It was now full light, and the sharp-eared among the cavalry regiment heard the drone of fast-approaching aircraft. Japanese planes? Figuracion wondered. He was a bit confused to hear enemy aircraft on such a cloudy morning. Up ahead, the troop leaders waved their hats in the air, signaling their troops to prepare for an air attack. The horsemen jumped from their saddles and dove for the shallow roadside ditches, towing their horses behind them. The men attempted to make themselves as small of targets as possible, which can't be easy with a horse. The tense moments dragged on as the 26th Cavalry held their breath and attempted to keep their horses calm, waiting for the strafing to begin. Quiet, quiet, we'll be okay, Figurasun said to his horse. He was likely attempting to calm himself more than his mount. Soon the aircraft appeared overhead, and the cavalrymen gave a collective sigh of relief. They came out of the ditches and hiding places, joyful to see two American P-40 pursuit planes overhead, part of the remnants of the United States Far East Air Force that had been all but eradicated since the start of the war two weeks earlier. The cavalrymen waved to the planes as the pilots waggled their wings in acknowledgement. Remounting his horse, Private Figuracion got back into the reforming horse columns and continued northward toward Rosario. He watched the sky, increasingly worried as the cloud cover cleared, leaving the regiment exposed along the road. 
Above him, he noticed an increasing number of Japanese scouting planes. An hour or so later, around 9 a.m., they heard and felt the rumble of tanks behind them. A cavalry commander called out, Regiment, halt! The cavalry dismounted and moved off the road while the 192nd tanks rumbled past them. Figuracion gratefully dropped down to the base of a tree. Nearby, an American lieutenant scanned the sky and scowled at the circling Japanese aircraft overhead. Reminded of the buzzards he'd seen back home, he angrily grumbled, Damn you, we're not dead meat yet, you bastard. Another voice, this one joyful, called out, Hey, boys, maybe some of this will cheer you up. Come get it before I eat it all. Looking toward the voice, Private Figuracion saw a group of his fellow countrymen, civilians coming among the soldiers and horses with coconuts, rice cakes, bread, fruit, and all sorts of other foods. The civilians were showing their gratitude to their countrymen, their protectors. The tired, hungry cavalrymen ate thankfully. One man, near tears with gratitude, said, No five-star restaurant could serve up such a great-tasting meal. The 26 cavalry were resting and safe and calm for the moment. Because, unbeknownst to them, some 15 miles ahead, Japanese forces had started landing on the Lingayen Gulf shore around 5.15 a.m., roughly the same time that the 26 cavalry had begun their northward march for the day. The Japanese would encounter little to no Allied resistance as they landed three infantry regiments with artillery and tanks to support them. And the invaders were at that moment headed inland, directly toward Private Figuracion and the 26 cavalry. This is Left Behind. Welcome to Left Behind, a podcast about the people left behind when the U.S. surrendered the Philippines in the early days of World War II. I'm Anastasia Harmon, and I tell you the stories of World War II servicemen and women, civilians, guerrillas, and others captured by Japanese forces in the Philippines. My great-grandfather, Al-Masam, was one of those POWs, and his memoir inspired me to tell these stories. I'm particularly excited about this week's episode because, for the first time in this podcast, I'm focusing on a native Filipino soldier, Private Dominador Figuracion. Private Figuracion was one of some 60 to 70,000 native Filipinos who fought with American forces in the Philippines in the early days of World War II. Now just a note here, exact numbers of servicemen who fought, died, and were captured in the Philippines are surprisingly hard to find. They vary widely depending on the source being used. Filipino servicemen outnumbered American troops 4 to 1. However, there is sadly little information on native Filipino servicemen, which makes researching their lives very difficult, if not impossible. Part of the issue is that few Filipino records are available online, and I am not in the Philippines to do on-the-ground research. Plus, even if I were, I don't speak Tagalog or any other native Philippine languages. So, I do the best with what I have access to, and today I'm delighted to tell you the life story of Private Dominador Figuracion. Dominador T. Figuracion was born on February 5, 1920 at Fort Stolzenberg in the Philippines. 
If you listen to previous episodes, you may recall that Fort Stutzenberg was right next to Clark Field, which the Japanese Air Force destroyed on the first day of World War II. The Philippines was a U.S. territory when Dominador was born. The United States had taken possession of the Philippines in 1898 at the end of the Spanish-American War. Before then, the Philippines was under Spanish rule, and Spain ceded the island country to the U.S. as part of the war treaty. So Dominador was born an American national. A national is someone born in an American land, but not quite a U.S. citizen with all the rights that go along with that. I don't know much about his early life. His army enlistment records suggest that he attended only one year of high school and that, before joining the army, he worked as an actor. But I have no further details about that interesting tidbit. In February 1941, just after his 21st birthday, Dominador enlisted as a private in the 26th Cavalry Regiment, Philippine Scouts, U.S. Army. The 26th Cavalry was a legit old-school cavalry, meaning it was a horse-mounted regiment. It would be one of the last horse-mounted units in the U.S. Army. The 26th Cavalry was also a Philippine Scout Regiment. Organized in 1901, the Philippine Scouts was a sub-organization of the U.S. Army. There were 18 Philippine Scout units and around 10,000 Philippine Scouts in the U.S. Army when World War II broke out. These units were made up mainly of Filipino troops under the command of American, i.e. white, commissioned officers. There are three types of service people in the U.S. Army, commissioned officers, non-commissioned officers, and enlisted men. Commissioned officers hold the rank of lieutenant and higher, so captain, major, general, and so forth. Commissioned officers have college degrees and intended a military academy or ROTC or similar. Enlisted men are the individuals who sign up for or are drafted into the army. Typically someone enters as a private and can work their way up the ranks to that of non-commissioned officers such as sergeant and staff sergeant. At the beginning of World War II, the 26th Cavalry Regiment had 54 commissioned officers. As far as I can tell, one of those officers may have been Filipino. The rest were American. The remaining 784 members of the 26th Cavalry were enlisted or non-com Filipinos. Now since we're talking military structure, I need to explain one more thing. The Philippine Scouts were a separate organization from the Philippine Army, and this will become important in a few minutes. The Philippine Scouts was part of the U.S. Army. The Philippine Army was a separate entity under the direction of the Philippine government. The Philippine Scouts had better training, better leadership, and better weapons than the Philippine Army. Most members of the Philippine Army were reservists with very little military training. At the beginning of World War II, President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed an order bringing the Philippine Army under command of the U.S. Army in the Philippines. There were about 40 to 50,000 Filipinos in the Philippine Army when the war started. Private Figuracion was a member of the 26th Cavalry's Troop F when the Japanese first attacked the Philippines on December 8, 1941. For the first few days of war, Japanese attacks focused on the U.S. Air Forces and then the U.S. Naval Forces, virtually destroying both in a matter of days. The Japanese had landed small groups of men and equipment at various points on Luzon to establish small air and navy bases. 
All this was accomplished in two weeks' time. But the big Japanese ground troop invasion was yet to come. Between 1 and 4.30 a.m. on December 22, 1941, more than 80 Japanese transport and other ships cruised into the large Lingayen Gulf, which is about 145 miles or 234 kilometers north and a little bit west of Manila. They dropped anchor and began sending landing crafts filled with ground troops to shore. The first of those troops landed at 5.17 a.m., just south of the coastal town of Agu. Now, battle and invasion details quickly become hard to follow because so many things are happening at once. So I'm going to simplify this landing and subsequent battles as much as possible. But you can find the names of a couple books I recommend for more details on this subject in the show notes. By 7 a.m., Japanese ground troops with their artillery and tanks had come ashore at three locations along a 21-mile or 34-kilometer stretch of the Lingayen Gulf Coast near the towns of Bang, Agu, and Demortis. Think of this coast area like a rectangle standing on one of its short sides. The Lingayen Gulf Shore is on the rectangle's left side. Baung is at the top left, the northwestern corner. Demortis is on the bottom left or southwestern corner. Agu is at left center. The road Route 3 ran north to south and linked the towns of Baung, Agu, and Demortis. This coastal area where the Japanese landed was fairly flat for six to seven miles inland before hills and mountains block further progression east. Those hills and mountains make up the right side of the rectangle. Because the mountains, which had no roads through them, made a natural barrier, the Japanese landing forces had to go north or south of the rectangle area to get access to Luzon Island's interior. By the way, I have a map of this area on my website if the rectangle description doesn't work for you. You can find the link in the show description. The northernmost landing of the Japanese forces was near Baung, where they were met by Philippine Army units. The under-trained and under-armed Filipino forces quickly gave way to the more advanced and experienced Japanese troops. From there, the Japanese easily pushed inland eastward along a road, which, for our analogy, forms the top of the rectangle. Following that road, they easily advanced into Baguio, one of Luzon's main cities, and they quickly overran that city. Most of the landing Japanese troops intended to head south down Route 3 to Demortis, then cut east on the road to the town of Rosario. That Demortis-Rosario road runs east to west from those two cities and makes up the bottom side of our rectangle. Thus, Rosario is located at the bottom right or southeast corner of the rectangle. If the Japanese ground forces took Rosario, they'd have fairly direct access via roads and cities to Manila, which is 130 miles or 210 kilometers south of Rosario. The Japanese landing near Agu, and again, that's in the middle left of the rectangle, were met by a unit of Philippine army troops, but they too quickly gave way to the superior Japanese. This allowed the invading Japanese forces to establish strong footholds on the 22 mile stretch of coastline. By the afternoon of December 22nd, the Japanese had landed three infantry regiments, artillery, and tanks. While the Japanese were landing on that early morning, the 26th Cavalry was heading north to Rosario, 
as was the 192nd Tank Battalion in their M3 light tanks. The M3 light tanks were small and honestly, they look almost like toy tanks to me. And yes, I know they were a very important weapon in World War II. They are shorter, narrower, and not as tall as the heavier medium tanks that we're probably most used to seeing in World War II era pictures and film. Think the size difference between a full-size SUV like a Suburban or Expedition and a small SUV like a Ford Escape. When I see pictures of these tanks with servicemen sitting on top of them, I wonder how the four-person crew actually fit inside of one. I've got a picture on my website of the 26th Cavalry walking by the M3 tanks, so you can see for yourself. The link is in the show description. Neither the horsemen nor the tankmen had learned what was going on at the beach in Lingayen Gulf. The 26th Cavalry finally reached Rosario around 9.30 or 10 a.m. They were already tired, having ridden and marched northward for several days, and just completed a good 10 miles or 16 kilometers that morning. But rest wasn't in store for Private Figuracion and his comrades. No, orders had come down from the generals that the 26th Cavalry and the 192nd Tank Battalion had to keep Japanese troops from reaching Rosario. Colonel Clinton A. Pierce, the leader of the 26th Cavalry, ordered all the troops of the 26th Regiment to head west from Rosario to De Mortis, except for Troop F, which Private Figuracion was part of. The colonel had a special assignment for them. As you know, the main road heads west out of Rosario to De Mortis, that bottom edge of our rectangle. But there were five trails heading north and northwest out of Rosario and directly into the now Japanese-occupied region along the coast. Japanese ground troops could easily use these trails to get to Rosario. And, you'll also remember, controlling Rosario meant the Japanese had good access to roads and cities on their way to Manila. Colonel Pierce assigned Troop F's patrols to cover those trails, reinforced by a machine gun section. So Troop F's goal was to fight a delaying action to force any Japanese ground troops south and west toward the main Rosario de Mortis Road, where the rest of the 26th would be. It was a good call because Japanese ground forces did move down those trails towards Rosario, where they encountered Private Figuracion and the rest of Troop F. Figuracion was with a squad of seven men from Troop F patrolling a trail north of Rosario. The private was about 100 yards away from the rest of his squad on flank security when his squad was ambushed by the Japanese troops. The story goes that his squad members were gunned down before they could get off any shots. Figuracion, however, was able to return fire with his Garand M1 rifle. He was the only member of the squad to do so. He later recalled, I believe I was the first soldier to engage the enemy in ground combat in World War II using the M1 Garand, since these were the first shots fired during the Japanese invasion. The M1 Garand rifle was a semi-automatic rifle and THE service rifle of the U.S. Army during World War II. Think of the long rifles you see servicemen carrying in every World War II movie. Maybe you can even hear the distinctive clink of the weapon reloading. That's the Garand M1 rifle. World War II General George Patton said, The M1 rifle is the greatest battle implement ever devised. The M1 was the U.S. Army's surface rifle from 1936 through 1958. As far as Figuracion being the first to fire the weapon in World War II, well, that's hard to know or corroborate. 
He could have fired the first M1 shots at the Japanese that morning because, as far as I've read, most of the fighting earlier in the day was with machine guns. This claim is further bolstered by the fact that the Philippine Army was outfitted with old World War I-era rifles. So even though Philippine Army forces engaged the Japanese fairly early in the day, it's likely they were not using the Garand M1. So it's possible that Private Figuracion fired the first Garand M1 shots of World War II. At the very least, he fought the first legitimate American-Japanese ground battle in the Philippines during World War II. And that's pretty cool right there. The number of Japanese troops coming down the trails was overwhelming Troop F, which was being slowly pushed back toward Rosario. But the stalwart horsemen, under heavy fire, held their positions as best they could to keep Japanese troops from getting to Rosario. While Troop F was defending the Rosario trails, the rest of the 26th Cavalry and the 192nd Tanks headed west along the graveled road that wound through the rolling hills for about six miles from Rosario to Demortis. So, again, the bottom edge of our rectangle. They arrived to discover the small town had not yet been taken by Japanese forces. A lieutenant from Troop A looked out into the gulf. Lingang Gulf seemed choked with Jap warships and transports. There was a heavy haze in the airless heat. We watched the Jap landing barges bringing men and supplies ashore. We could do nothing to stop them. There was an empty pit in everyone's stomach at that point. The cavalry and tanks were tasked with holding the line along the Demortis Rosario Road, thus halting the Japanese invasion from going further east and getting access to the main road south of Rosario. Now I want to pause for a moment, because we're talking about an interesting shifting point in American warfare. At this battle, we see a U.S. horse-mounted cavalry unit fighting alongside a U.S. armored tank unit. The 26th Cavalry was one of the last horse-mounted cavalries in U.S. history. So this moment in the first days of World War II is a passing of the baton, so to speak, because armored warfare would, in many ways, take over what the horse-mounted cavalry had been for centuries before. Anyway, the first attack came around 1 p.m. when Japanese ground troops with air support attacked the U.S. forces near Demortis. There are a lot of battle details, but the end result is the cavalry and tank battalion couldn't hold the town and retreated back toward Rosario, along that southern edge of the rectangle. During this retreat, Figuracion and Troop F continued to hold their northern lines along the trails to keep Rosario clear for the retreating 26 cavalry horses and men and the 192nd tanks. Under strong enemy pressure, Troop F held that line until the last men of the 26 got through Rosario. Then Figuracion and Troop F fell in behind the retreating horse columns and covered the rear for some three miles until the American forces reached safety around midnight on December 22, 23, 1941. And this means that Japanese forces took possession of their goal, Rosario. They now had basically unfettered access to the paved roads and towns leading to Manila. At the same time that the Japanese were landing up north in Lingayen Gulf, Japanese forces were also landing in Limon Bay, some 50 miles or 80 kilometers southeast of Manila. The two invading forces quickly advanced, and two days later, on Christmas Eve, General Douglas MacArthur ordered U.S. forces on Luzon to withdraw to the Bataan Peninsula. So in late December 1941, 
Mere days after the initial Japanese landings, Private Figuracion was retreating to the Bataan Peninsula with the rest of the 26th Cavalry and all U.S. and Filipino forces on Luzon. On December 26, while the U.S. retreated to Bataan, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill spoke to U.S. Congress. After the outrages they have committed upon us at Pearl Harbor, in the Pacific Islands, in the Philippines, in Malaya and the Dutch East Indies, they must now know that the stakes for which they have decided to play are mortal. When we look at the resources of the United States and the British Empire, compared to those of Japan, when we remember those of China, which have so long valiantly withstood invasions and tyranny, and when also we observe the Russian menace which hangs over Japan, it becomes still more difficult to reconcile Japanese action with prudence or even with sanity. What kind of a people do they think we are? Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget? Churchill's words, especially the part about the U.S. never ceasing to persevere against the Japanese, are an interesting juxtaposition compared to what was happening in the Philippines against the Japanese advance, even as Churchill was speaking those words. Because at that very moment, Japan thought the U.S. seemed like an easy conquest. In a matter of two to three weeks, Japan had taken the Philippines. But since we know the eventual outcome of the war, we know that Churchill's words were prophetic. Even from a numbers game, it's difficult for me to understand how the Japanese thought they could take over so many countries on so many fronts, keep those holdings, and win the war. I'm not a war expert, or strategist, or even a war historian, so I don't know the intricacies of war decision and strategy. But if I've learned one lesson from playing Risk, it's not to spread your forces too thin too quickly, because you can't defend the territories you've conquered. And that's really what I see the Japanese set themselves up for at the beginning of World War II, because Japan was not just attacking and overrunning the Philippines. They were also invading China, present-day Taiwan, Guam, Wake Islands, and many other locations in the Pacific. Well, back to Private Figuracion. He spent four months on Bataan, during which time he participated in the last horse-mounted cavalry charge in U.S. history, with horses in full gallop and guns drawn heading straight for astonished and unprepared Japanese forces. I'll detail that charge in an upcoming episode. Survivors of the Battle of Bataan would later say that the Philippine scouts were the backbone of the U.S. defense on Bataan, and honestly, I'm not sure if there could be a higher honor, because the situation on Bataan was hell. Figuracion was captured on the Bataan Peninsula on April 9, 1942. He was one of about 60,000 Filipino servicemen captured there. For comparison, about 10,000 American servicemen were captured on Bataan. He was forced to go, this time without a horse mount, on the nearly 70-mile Bataan Death March. Estimates suggest that from 5,000 to 10,000 Filipinos died on the Death March meaning around 50,000 Filipino POWs entered Camp O'Donnell at the march's end. 
The prisoners were sick and starving when they arrived, and Japanese overseers were not prepared to house, feed, or medicate the massive number of POWs they had captured. Reports say that Camp O'Donnell prisoners continued to die at rates of hundreds per day. One estimate says 400 per day. The dead were buried in mass graves outside of camp fences. Filipino POWs would remain at Camp O'Donnell after the American POWs were transferred to another camp in June 1942. In total, some 20 to 26,000 Filipino servicemen died at Camp O'Donnell between May 1942 and January 1943, meaning that less than half the Filipinos captured on Bataan returned home. But return home the survivors would, as the Japanese gradually released or paroled all Filipino prisoners to their families or to their hometown mayors. Private Figuracion was imprisoned at O'Donnell until about January 1943. Some claim that he escaped captivity. I can't find corroboration for an escape, but then again there may not have been records of that. But whether he escaped or was released, he didn't return home, or at least stay at home very long. Instead, he joined the Filipino guerrilla resistance movement, most likely under the leadership of Captain Manuel Coleco, who had been in the Philippine army and was also a Bataan veteran. Information on guerrilla groups during the war is sparse, especially when the guerrilla leader died during the war, as Captain Coleco did. So I have little information about Figuracion's guerrilla activities beyond his own words. I fought for three years with the guerrilla unit that eventually helped liberate the Santo Tomas civilian prison camp. Shortly after the Japanese occupied Manila, they put all American, British, and other allied civilians, including women and children, into an internment camp at Santo Tomas University in Manila. The vast majority of these civilians would remain at Santo Tomas for three years. Figuracion, as a guerrilla, aided U.S. Army forces in liberating the Santo Tomas civilian internment camp. Sixty-five years later, at a Philippine scout reunion, a man who was imprisoned as a child at Santo Tomas shared his experiences at the camp and about liberation. A 90-year-old Figuracion spoke up, saying simply, I was there. The young guerrilla turned 25 two days after liberating the camp. Dan Figuracion remained in the U.S. Army after the war ended. He married Ali Tizon in October 1945. Their first child, a son named Daniello, was born in the Philippine Islands on July 30, 1946. By May 1958, Dan Figuracion was a 38-year-old sergeant first class, and he moved his family from the Philippines to Hawaii. I'm assuming this was an Army-based transfer. They remained there for a year before moving to Lacey, Washington, where Sergeant First Class Figuracion was stationed at Fort Lewis. Figuracion was an excellent shot and a member of the Army's 6th Advanced Marksmanship Training Unit. He even won the Center Rapid Fire match at a shooting competition in April 1960. The Figuracion family had moved south to Seaside, California by February 1962, where Dan was stationed at Fort Ord. The family remained there for most of the 1960s, but eventually Dan and his wife Ellie returned to Tacoma, Washington. After retirement, Dan Figuracion became a fixture at various Philippine scout reunions and other World War II events. He always wore his cavalry campaign hat and walked around with spurs on his shoes. I have a picture on my website of a 90-something Figuracion playing with mini cavalry figures at one of these reunions. It's quite cute. 
At one time, there were 40 former Philippine scouts living in Washington State's Puget Sound area. By 2012, there were only five, and Dan was the only one who could still walk. A 90-year-old Dan said, Every time a scout dies, I always go to their funeral. I say that I'll be the last one to die, but who will attend my funeral when I die? And indeed, he may have been prophetic in that. Cavalryman Dan Figuracion dismounted this life, as his obituary says, on April 3, 2017, in Lakewood, Washington. He was 97 years old and survived by Ellie, his wife of 71 years. His family, including children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, numbered more than 50 people. So perhaps he was the last of his brothers-in-arms to pass away. But his funeral was attended by many people who honored, respected, and loved him. Dan Figuracion may have been the last surviving member of the 26th Cavalry and of the last horse-mounted cavalry charge in U.S. history. Back in 1941, while the 26th Cavalry was trying to hold back the enemy at Rosario, General Douglas MacArthur was enacting War Plan Orange. Highly affected by that plan was the Army Corps of Engineers and their bulldozers. More on that next time. This is Left Behind. Thanks for listening. You can find pictures and maps of Dan Figuracion and his story on my website. The link is in the show description. You'll also find a list of sources I used. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe so you're the first to know when I drop a new episode every Monday. I'll be back next week with a look at the devastation that baton and imprisonment had on one company of Army Engineers. (laughs) 